Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello there and welcome. I'm Mark Kenny and this is Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. Thanks for some very kind comments after our two recent episodes hinging off the ABC's excellent Nemesis series and a shout out to Mark Willisey, the journalist uh, at the microphone in that excellent series and to the team. It was an extremely rigorous process. I think they did 90 research interviews, they did 60 on-camera interviews and there was a lot of research involved, of course, a lot of, a big team and I think it was a, um, a really splendid document. Uh, it didn't do everything but those, those kinds of studies of what it was like inside the room, that's what they're intended to do is tell us what was happening inside the government at the time, what were the political discussions that were happening, who was loyal to who, who wasn't and so forth. It didn't try and unpick every political scandal that happened. It didn't try and get in and, and into the details of policy. And uh, that did frustrate some people because, of course, there were some big policy uh, arguments and failures pursued through that time by the various iterations of the coalition government. But um, I think uh, you, you can only do so much. And this was uh, much more a document about or a documentary about what was happening inside the coalition party room through leadership changes and through various other crises that befell that government. And I think it was outstanding. So a shout out to them and, and thanks for the enthusiasm we, we got from you as uh, listeners. Now, this week, we're going to talk about the Middle East. A few days from now, the war in Ukraine will turn two years old. But where that conflict is seen in quite clear terms, the war between Israel and Gaza is more complex, it's more contested, it's certainly more polarising. And I'd say for the West, it is also quite compromising, which is to say uh, that uh, the values that are being defended very clearly and strongly by Western countries in support for Ukraine are much more muddied when it comes to some of the things that are going on in Gaza, particularly the pulverizing attacks on civilians and the you know the, the very very worrying death toll there. And that's not to minimise at all the appalling circumstances in which this whole episode, this whole chapter of this ongoing conflict uh, between Palestine and Israel or Palestinians, stateless Palestinians, at least in a technical sense at the moment, and Israel have been going on for you know 75 years. And But we know what happened on October 7 and we don't seek to minimise that in any way. To help us understand all of this a bit better, I'm very grateful to have with me one of Australia's foremost specialists on the Middle East, Ian Palmiter. 
Ian is a former ambassador to Beirut. Uh, he's had postings in Syria and Saudi Arabia, among others. He's a former intelligence analyst with the Office of National Assessments, and he is now a research scholar at the ANU's Centre for Arab and Islamic Studies. Welcome to Democracy Sausage, Ian. Thank you very much, Mark. Now, if it's all right with you, I might just start with, I, I, I gave a little potted history there of your of your mm. background, but I might just start with, with your own story. You've, you've had a very long association with the Middle East. Yes, and uh, I think like the associations that many people have with uh, an area like that, it happened initially almost by accident because I actually was a journalist for five years after leaving. Oh, I didn't know that. After leaving university, oh. I worked... I was initially trained on the Canberra Times, oh, but okay. I also worked in Britain on two newspapers there, a, a regional newspaper, the Birmingham Post, and uh, also on the Evening Standard, um, which um, I'm for, in both places I learned a, a lot about journalism. But when we returned to Australia, my wife and I, we had the travel bug, and um, my wife saw an advertisement for diplomatic trainees and said, why don't you apply for those? For that? You have mm. to be under 26 to apply. And I was still under 26 at the time, so I applied and got in. And at the end of that year, they sent me off to Cairo to study Arabic wow. for, for, for two years. So I lived in Cairo with the life of the student, in a sense, with my wife, and we had a young child at that point, and um, loved Cairo. I found it utterly fascinating then went on to a posting in Saudi Arabia, and after various stints back in Australia, I uh, had postings in Syria, in Moscow as well, and um, also in Lebanon before going to the Office of National Assessments, as, as you mentioned, where I, I really had about 15 years of, um, of a career there. But an interesting thing about the Middle East when I first got there in 1977 was I knew very little about it. In fact, at the time, I obviously read the histories of it and that sort of thing. But you've really got to live in the country to, mm. to absorb it. And I was studying Arabic and going through a, the headlines in Al-Ahram newspaper with my tutor. And I thought I'd got something wrong. And I said, this headline talks about our victory in 1973. And I said, but Egypt didn't win in 1973. It was more like a, um, a draw, um, wasn't it? And uh, my tutor, got very, who was Egyptian, got very <laughs> upset and said, no, we won. We won. And I decided not to take that any further because it was a very emotional issue. Mm. And so we left it at that. But it became clear to me in the course of that year, that was 1977, that Sadat was able to claim... This is Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt. Anwar Sadat, mm. yes, the president, was able to claim 1973 as a victory because on the basis of that victory, he could then make his outreach to Israel, go to Jerusalem in 1977 and eventually sign a peace agreement with, with Israel, but having restored Egyptian pride, which it did. Mm. I mean, they, um, some friends of mine who were living in Israel at the time were said that the Israelis were really taken by surprise and uh, and were really worried that uh, this time the Egyptians and the Syrians could actually have, 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 have done for them. And that was a really significant moment, wasn't yeah. it, at the time? I mean, that was a yeah. big breakthrough for Israel to have this peace, to have this recognition and this peace agreement. Exactly. I mean, getting Egypt, well, having a peace agreement with Israel, with Egypt, between Israel and Egypt, really was a, a huge strategic win for Israel, because it meant that the biggest Arab state with the biggest army, the largest population, was suddenly taken out of the equation. 
the Egyptians had very good reason to want to uh, maintain that peace. And one of the reasons, of course, was that um, they had decided to throw over their relationship with the Soviet Union in the early 70s and instead turned to the United States, for which the United States rewarded them richly. They, uh, they were given enormous amounts of aid, both uh, civil and military, by, by the United States, but all of it intended to, to keep the peace treaty in place. And so it was a great victory for Israel in that sense, because at that stage, none of the other states were likely to be able to defeat Israel together or on their own. And of course, it didn't play well for Anwar Sadat in the end, did it? He was assassinated. Um, That's right. Yeah. And of course, much later on, Yitzhak Rabin, Rabin in um, in Israel was assassinated. Very often for mm. essentially for I mean, I know they're different incidents mm. relating to different yeah. negotiations, but. Uh, pretty clearly shows the uh, the danger that uh, even people who are trying to make progress, leaders that make progress in these long-running conflicts, can end up being um, taken down by extremists on their own side. Yes. Uh, I mean, the death of both leaders, uh, Anwar Sadat and Itzhak Rabin in 1995, yeah. I think it was, yeah. both of those were, were tragedies, obviously at a personal level for, for them, but also for the processes that they were sponsoring. Yes. Um, if... if Itzhak Rabin had lived, and he had been a hardliner, although in today's terms he probably wouldn't be described as, yes. as being as hard as, say, Netanyahu is, Prime Minister Netanyahu in, in Israel. But if Itzhak Rabin had, had lived, the peace process at that point could possibly have gone forward, and there could well have been peace established with, with the Palestinians at, at that stage. Yeah, I think Yasser yeah. Arafat said in the aftermath of that, he said, Where, you know, who do I negotiate with now? Yes. Uh, yeah. And nego negotiation obviously is a precursor. To, it, it, it's fundamental to the idea of actually getting to a peace, a peaceful settlement. And yeah. Um, yeah. We, can, we can talk a bit about negotiations that are going on now, how mm. they're going on, whether there's any chance for them. Your um, through our conversations uh, in the lead up to this discussion, I think it's fair to say even more pessimistic than I am, and than many people are about the situation, uh, the current situation in the uh, the war between Hamas and and Israel. Why is that? I mean, my feeling is just to, just by way of making a comparison, my feeling is that obviously it's an extremely grim situation, unimaginably grim. Mm. Yet there is, it seems to me more momentum in the international community, more resolve in the international community now to try and do something deci something decisive in this regard. Um, we see Lord Cameron, uh, you know, David Cameron, former uh, Prime Minister of Britain, now Foreign Minister, and, and uh, people like him, we see Macron in France, they're both talking about giving the Palestinians a horizon, something to hope for, mm -hmm. something to believe is possible as a way of putting some energy and some some sort of, I, I suppose, some credibility into negotiations. But this is all toward the idea of Palestinian statehood, which is part of the much talked about but, but completely undelivered two-state plan, two-state solution, a Palestinian state alongside an Israeli state. You think that's yeah, just fanciful? I, th I think there are several reasons. I mean... If Unfortunately, um, I've been a pessimist in the Middle East for a, a very long time. And you keep being proven right. <laughs> I keep being proven right, yes. What's the old story? A pessimist is a, 
an optimist who's been mugged by reality or, <laughs> or, or something like that. Yeah, there's plenty but, of that going on there. But the point is, um, I've lived in, in the Middle East and I've visited every country in the Middle East. And it's a very tough neighborhood, a very rough neighborhood. And it produces some very hardline people. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. I think the problem with any peace negotiations between Israel and any Palestinian entity, be it led by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank or in, in, in some way with, with Hamas, is that there's no trust now. Mm. Um, if after the attacks by Hamas, which, as you rightly said, were absolutely horrific on October the 7th, Isra even Israelis who, who had hopes of peace were perhaps prepared to consider some form of two-state solution uh, are now much harder line on, on that. I saw some figures yesterday that indicated that only about 25% uh, of Israelis think that negotiations with Palestinians are even worthwhile at, at this point. It will take a long time to restore that trust. It may be able to be restored. I certainly hope it can. The other part of the problem is that a two-state solution requires space for the Palestinian state. Now, clearly Gaza in itself isn't, isn't large enough but uh, neither at this stage is, is the West Bank, uh, simply because of the number of Israeli settlements that have gone there. Well, when I first went... And that's before you get to the cont contiguity problem, if I could put it like that, that yeah. where there is no... no those, two, those two places are separated yes. by, uh, by, by Israel itself. Yeah, that, that, I think that, that I've looked at some possible solutions to that. That could be done by a, a, a Palestinians-only road or, or something like that. I mean, essentially, Israel giving up the a, a small corridor mm. to enable the two states to be, to be... or the two sides to be linked. I mean, that's, that's one of the possibilities. Mm. It's mm. never been been actually sort of formally formally sort of sorted out and discussed at, at this stage. But it would be mm. open to being. If this isn't a contradiction in terms. It would be open to being closed. That is vulnerable yes. to Israel simply closing it That's to right. separate the two territories, the two parts of that state. Oh, exactly, um, exactly. I mean, uh, and I think there are very few Israelis, very very few, who would not accept the point that. Prime Minister Netanyahu has made that Israel really has to control militarily the whole area from the Jordan River in the east right across to the Mediterranean. That there there really is no 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 other way that Israel can be can can feel secure. I mean, one can understand that uh, among Israelis, but the big problem um, is that in the West Bank itself, there is now so little land that's left which could, could form the basis of a, of a Palestinian state. Uh, the best parts would have been taken over by Israeli settlements. Mm. Some of them are huge. Yeah, I, mean, I know. When you see them, yeah. they are, and they occupy hilltops. They've, mm. in many cases, monopolized yeah. the available water. Of course, water is a very scarce resource in that part of the world. Exactly. And, uh, yes, it's a real problem. There has been some talk of the idea of land swaps, of ter territory mm. swaps, of, of perhaps increasing the geographical size of the West Bank to take account of that or? Usually that comes down to uh, taking a bit of the Negev Desert and, yeah. uh, and, and making that part. Which is the, that part down yeah. near Egypt that we were talking about before, near the, yeah. the border with but, Egypt. But it's it's not very attractive land. No, I mean, it's, it's called, called desert. Not, <laughs> it's not called a desert. I mean, it's not fully desert. It's it's an area where, by comparison with the rest of the West Bank and the rest of Israel, mm. which, I mean, you've been there, mm. it's, it's a beautiful country. It is. It's really quite 
desolate and uh, is, is not attractive land. And the perspective of the Palestinians, of course, is that all of it was theirs at one, sta- at one stage. And uh, they say, you know, we why, why should we not get it all back? Now, clearly that's totally unrealistic at, at this point. I mean, if I just might digress mm. at this point to make a point, I taught at the Centre for Arab Islamic Studies a, a course on the, Israel, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the second half of 2022, which I found very interesting because I had to go right back to the start of the growth of Zionism in the, in the 19th century and take it right through the British Mandate, Balfour Declaration, etc., but through to the 1947 Petition Plan um, that the UN General Assembly drew up. Now, uh, if you look at that Petition Plan, it was a basis for negotiations at that stage. But unfortunately for the Palestinians, their leadership at the time ruled it out entirely. They said, no, we won't accept that. We used to have all of the land. We want nothing less than all of the land back. Because it involved uh, villages, towns, uh, uh, farming areas and so forth, uh, you know, people being moved off. I yes, mean, Palestinians, that's right. right. So, uh, a separate Palestinian state yeah. and a separate Israeli state yeah. or Jewish state, as mm. it was called at that time. It wasn't uh, Israel didn't have the name at that stage. But the Jewish representatives said, yes, please, we'll take that. Mm. And um, because there was no no agreement, the British were determined to end their mandate and they ended their mandate on the 14th of, um, I believe it was the 14th, might have been the 15th of May, 1948. And they just you know, were prepared to get out of that stage. Um, but at that stage, the war started because the, the Arab states all came in supporting the Palestinians. And it took Israel some several months to uh, to win that war. It was the War of Independence. So that but, came... But they eventually that, won. That, came on the, that war came on the back of what the Palestinians call the Nabka, the, the catastrophe. Well, no, the Nakba was Nakba, the sorry, result, yeah. result of the yeah. war uh, when Palestinians were driven out of uh, their ancestral homes. I mean, many of them still got their keys. Many went to Lebanon. Mm. A lot went to Jordan. Some even went to Egypt. There was a very large number of Palestinians, possibly about 700,000, that were driven out of their ancestral home in in what was um, British Mandate uh, Palestine. And they've always wanted to come back and have never been able to come back. And even under a full peace agreement, that's one of the contentious issues. Mm. It's most unlikely that any of them will be allowed to come back. And when I was working in Syria and in uh, Lebanon, I used to go to Palestinian encampments and uh, meet Palestinians there. And many of them still had the keys to their homes in 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 Israel, and you can understand that you can yes. understand that that attachment um, uh, and, and, that, children, and that feeling you know, of a great yeah. wrong having having mm. been done them, uh, and uh, trying to keep alive that hope of, of of justice being done in their case. Absolutely, I one mean, one of the ideas I've heard talked about, and I don't know how much currency this has, or whether it is a, anything that could actually be workable. It sounds on the face of it kind of unworkable, but and that is. Um, as part of any sort of agreement, if it could be reached and if it could contain other sufficient positive things, that 
the right of those returnees be recognised but not exercised. Mm. Have you heard about that that sort of idea? Uh, and they could be given compensation yeah. in, in some way. Yeah. Yes, I've heard that as being one of the many issues. I mean, some of the uh, some brilliant minds have worked on on this. It's almost like a Rubik's cube. You can, it is. Yeah, you can just sort of uh, come up with 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 a lot of ideas. And uh, I mean, there was a great deal of hope in the the early nineteen nineties, of course. Uh, at the time, after the Oslo Accords were yeah, so were, this were, were is signed. when when Rabin yeah. and and yeah. Arafat are actually having those yeah, shook hands. Yes, and, and Bill Clinton's leading those mm. negotiations. And up to uh, it's a uh, Rabin's death, mm-hmm. um, it really looked quite possible. But after that, it uh, it really started to, to, to fall apart, and we had the Intifada, uh, second Intifada, which started in in the year two thousand and totally destroyed the Oslo Accords. For those people who don't know, um, Intifada, I think it means uprising. Uprising, yes. And uh, can you just explain sort of what it was? Because we hear about the first and the second Intifada and the talk of a third Intifada. Yeah. Um, Well, it was something which in many ways hurt the Palestinians more than than the Israelis uh, because the Israelis were able to uh, led to the walling off of Mm. the, the Many parts of the Israeli predominated in Occupied West Bank, yeah. yeah. But uh, essentially, it was a, a mass strike accompanied by by violence. There was stone throwing. There were attacks on individual Israelis. There were a lot of people killed on on both sides. It wasn't outright war, but it it made everybody feel very uncomfortable. There was this sense that almost anywhere that you went near the border with uh, between Israel and um, and the Palestinian occupied areas was 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 very dangerous and certainly uh, many settlers were were killed in in the course of that too. Mm. As I said many, and quite a large number of Israeli uh, Palestinians were killed, but it was it did hurt them much more. Interestingly, one of the uh, the, the people who is often seen as a potential Palestinian negotiator, a man by the name of uh, Marwan Baghouti was put in jail during the, the time of the first intifada from 87 to 93 because he actually was found guilty of killing some Israelis. And in fact, uh, I, my general understanding is that Hamas, in calling for the release of prisoners that Israel holds, wants to include Baghouti among them. I don't know the rights and wrongs of what Barghouti did, but um, he is certainly seen in the opinion polls as someone who could unite and lead the Palestinians and would be capable of coming to some sort of long-term settlement with, with the Palestinians if he were given the chance. It, it's but really it's interesting. It's most unlikely yeah. it will happen, though. One can feel the parallels there with uh, with some others. I'm thinking Nelson Mandela, for example, jailed as an ANC terrorist mm. at the yeah. time who spends a long time in prison and emerges to lead his his his, his country back to reunification mm-hmm. but his own side to a peaceful settlement which makes me think uh, as and I'm not the first person to note this um, that in our lifetimes we've seen some of these intractable uh, problems I think South Africa as one mm. example, uh, the Northern Irish problem yes, exactly. as another one, the Troubles. Mm. Um, we've seen these things taken to a new stage, to, to a stage mm. of some sort of uh, something approximating resolu- resolution, not without some problems in both cases, I think it's fair to mm. say. We see no progress in the Middle East on this between Israel and Palestine. It's like the fundamental injustices felt by both sides from the very beginning 
continue to frame it all the way through. And mm. there have been, as, you, as you've just noted, there have been moments where progress has looked possible, where leaders have emerged who have that as their commitment, uh, but we don't see any leaders at the moment on either side who seem capable of or committed to that. We just see them f further apart than ever. Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, the real tragedy of the 1947 uh, petition plan was that if the Palestinians had accepted their half loaf mm. uh, that they were they were offered and they did see it as being half a loaf, they wouldn't have had a state. Yes. Uh, there would be a recognised physical state that uh, they would have. And it was on some good land. So it's a, it's a great pity that their leaders at the time did not accept that. Um, and that really has set, set the parameters for the conflict since then. You can understand their thinking mm. uh, had they known what would occur. I mean, their, their, their view was, why should we give away mm. half our country? That was their view. Mm. Um, the Israelis had a view that they had histor historical links to, or the Jewish people had a historical links to that land as well. Mm. Um, these exactly. these things yes. were recognised. Um, yes, now we look at that and think, well, that that could have avoided a, a a whole lot of suffering, a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of you know violence that has really beset yes. the world ever since, and certainly framed that whole region. And that's the difference with uh, Northern Ireland, of course. That uh, uh, the, the the point is that the, it wasn't contested land as such; it was contested politics of mm. who should rule over that Northern Ireland uh, stretch of land. And um, that's what we hope being being substantially resolved now. Yeah, um, well, it, it's it's certainly been moved. It's it's much more peaceful than it used to be. I mm. mean, essentially, there's no state of war yeah. going on. There is the odd thing that you hear about, but uh, there's even now a Sinn Fein leader in Northern Ireland, which is which is yes, remarkable, amazing. and she yeah. has spoken mm. as first minister in quite conciliatory terms mm. um, about about the other side. It's uh, it, it does give some hope, but of course. Um, all of these circumstances are sui generis. They all they all have their own particular characteristics and yeah. you can't generalise about them. Let's just take a quick break and when we come back, I want to ask you a bit more about Hamas. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When the wind veered... The smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. I'm talking with Ian Palmer about the disaster that is the Middle East. I want to ask you in a moment about the one of the latest developments, which is this declaration by Israel rejecting uh, international pressure and the internationally imposed moves towards 
a two-state solution or whatever, but also about the declaration of March 10 as uh, a deadline for Hamas to return mm. all hostages, including the remains of deceased hostages. We'll come to that in a moment, but something you said in the first half that I wanted to just get your view on as well, and I know this is entirely speculative, but what do you think, as, as an expert, someone who's studied the region for a long time, what do you think the strategic thinking of Hamas was to launch the October 7 attack? I've wondered about that. I mean, they've never actually given a manifesto as to what they were doing, although I think they had a couple of, of hopes in mind. The operation, the the terrorist attack, and it wasn't a terrorism attack, they called uh, Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. Now, Al-Aqsa, of course, is the mosque in Jerusalem, yeah. from the third holiest place in, in Islam. Otherwise and known as the Temple Mount the, by, by Israelis. The Temple Mount by Israelis, yeah. that's right. And uh, it's just below the um, the wall mm. where Israelis Jews pray, but the uh, but the point is that they were clearly trying to draw Islamic opinion uh, on their behalf when they they did it. They also, I think, were hoping that they might get a more general uprising, that they might get the the West Bank to come up and uh, and, and up, rise up with them at the same time. And but, possibly other regional players, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon? Well, they did hope that Hezbollah would definitely get involved, and undoubtedly. I don't think they thought anything about the Houthis at, uh, at that stage. No. But the... Uh, it turned out to be the most enthusiastic... Exactly. Uh, uh, opportunists. Which, yeah. which is uh, ironical, but I can get back to Hezbollah a bit later. But the, the point is that they've now got the... Palestinian-Israeli issue back at the top of the Middle East agenda. They have, yeah. And and that, I think, was a major part of what they had in, they wanted to do. They were very much aware that Prime Minister Netanyahu was very successful at making peace agreements with individual Arab states. He, yeah. Under the Abraham Accords, he'd made them with um, um, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, and, and, and uh, uh, Morocco. And he was indicating he wanted to make further peace agreements. One with Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. was just around the corner. Yeah. The Saudis had indicated that they were prepared to make a peace agreement with, with Israel. And for the Saudis and Israelis, that would be a match made in heaven because the Saudis would get Israeli technical cooperation and the Saudis would have the money. Um, so it, it could work very well. Mm. Now that's off the table. Well, now. it's been put on hold, hasn't it? I it's mean, been Saudi's put on hold. It's yeah. off the well, yeah, okay, mm. it's been put on hold. But um, it's going to be a while before the Saudis can come. Yeah, can could come be on hold back, for a long come time. Back, come back to it because they, even though it's a monarchy, they do have to think about the views of their own pop population. Yeah. So I think they wanted to stymie all of that, and uh, and essentially the Israelis gave them the opportunity because. At the end of uh, of a six day holiday, the Sukkot holiday, the Netanyahu government was far more concerned with protecting settlers in the West Bank. So that was why it took so long for the Israeli military to get down to southern Israel to to basically react against the the attack that Hamas was carrying out. And do, and does that explain? I hesitate to add, or I hasten, I should say, to add here. I'm not suggesting this is an excuse. I'm just wondering whether that long period of time between when they breached the border between uh, the Gaza Strip and Israel and they went into those kibbutzes, they engaged in the most appalling violence, mm. uh, the most appalling sexual violence and misogyny mm. and, and uh, um, you know, a murder and rape spree it can be described as nothing else. Mm. 
Was that always the intention? Was it designed to be sort of to maximally provoke the Israelis into a response? I mean, because you can sort of join the dots and look at a lot of that. Or was it actually opportunistic? That is, it took the Israeli Defence Forces so long to contest this action that the killing spree just went on for a long time. That's a, a particularly good question. I mean, clearly the fact that the Israeli Defence Forces took so long to get to the scene of the outrages was uh, part of the reason that they went on for so long for. But something I have heard, and you know, it's obviously discussed, I've discussed it with a, with a lot of people who have relatives in the West Bank and, and in Gaza, it was an operation that in itself was not meant to be as widespread as that. It was meant to be more a more limited operation to just kidnap some Israeli soldiers and get them back because it had such success with the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit. Mm. But others, when when the breaches were made, when the fence was blown up, others came through and a lot of the attacks were carried out by others without the full authorization of Hamas. Now, I don't know if that's true. I must emphasize that. But that is one of the, the accounts that, that, that I've heard, that it was one of these things that got quite out, out of hand and wasn't meant to be quite as bad as it was. It would have been bad anyway, but not necessarily as bad as that. Now, I mean, they, they went into a music festival and just were killing people indiscriminately. Yes, that's it right. Was... And, and the music festival was right down there too. Mm. Uh, they would have known about that. Mm. Um, the, the other thing, the other reality is that uh, um, Hamas, and of course there are other Palestinian groups in, in Gaza as well. You've got Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which vies with Hamas for uh, for some sort of authority in in, in Gaza as well, um, and it is a, a very hard line group. In addition, but the Israelis, just to put this in context, the Israelis had been trying a strategy which appeared to be working well, of giving work permits to to Gazans to come and work in Israel. Now, there's a big advantage in doing that. If the Gazans went and worked in Israel, they were paid a good wage. They would come back and support their families well in Gaza itself. This is well before October the 7th, of course. Mm -hmm. But as well as that, it provided an incentive for Hamas to keep not so much the peace, but what in Arabic they call hudna, which means quiet, and just basically uh, to not be causing problems for the, for the Israelis. Now, there were still some rockets that went back and forth, and there was a, an outbreak of fighting in in 2021. But by and large, the the idea of, of trying to get an incentive for the Palestinians, for the for the Gazans to keep some sort of peace, was was there. Now that's gone completely. But the Israelis actually thought it was working, and they thought that at this stage, uh, Hamas is probably quiet, and that was why. It appears that Netanyahu himself is saying he was never told that there was a risk that there could be an outbreak by Hamas at some point in the near future, whereas his own intelligence and military people were reportedly telling him, we don't know when, we don't know where, but we know they're planning something. So keep your eye on Gaza. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because Smotrich and Ben Gavir, two of the hardliners, the mm. ultra-nationalists in, in Netanyahu's government, you know, who are sort of almost personally, along with Netanyahu, responsible for that definition of the of the current government as the most right-wing in Israeli history, mm. they were very, very happy to be kind of uh, fostering as much division. And there was a lot of friction in the occupied West Bank as a result of their policies. Ben Gavir mm. is the security minister 
actually handing out weapons to settlers yes. uh, to conduct whatever violence they were conducting against Palestinians in mm. in what is actually meant to be the future Palestinian state. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it, the, the whole thing has just been such a disaster and a re- real reflection, as you say, on uh, where Israel's priorities were, very ideological and you know conducted with a great deal of sort of religious zeal mm. uh, in the occupied territories. And meanwhile, they were taken completely by surprise by something they should not have been surprised by. No, uh, and there's no doubt that as soon as there's some sort of long-term break in this fighting, whenever it might be, there will be a, a major inquiry into the intelligence failure or what went wrong. I mean, not just the intelligence, but the governance failure. Yeah, and Bibi Netanyahu uh, knows this, of course, which yes. is one of the reasons why and not only does he not really want this war to stop, because that's when that inquiry will start, as will, in fact, uh, he be facing criminal charges, fraud charges. That's, that's right. Uh, unrelated to that. But also, I suppose he figures that absolute victory, which is the sort of terminology he's using, the only outcome mm. of this is Israel's absolute victory. He's hoping that that, if it is literally absolute, that uh, that would be his ticket out of those sort of problems. Exactly. The longer it goes on, the better chance there is that some sort of something that he can call victory mm. will will emerge. I would suggest that such a victory could be the, the killing or capturing of Yahya Sinwa and also Mohammed Daif. The, so this the, is the, the leadership of Hamas. The, the two leaders of mm. Hamas, yes. Mm. If, if he could get rid of those, he can say he's decapitated them. Now, um, the big question arises then of where it all goes from there. One of the consequences of the Hamas attack and the, of the Israeli counterattack, of course, the, the Israeli you know, very strong uh, attack on Gaza has been that opinion polling in the West Bank where Hamas uh, really was meant to have fairly low opinion ratings. And before October the 7th, it was only about 12%. It's gone up to 44%. So among Palestinians yeah. who are now quite dispirited with the Palestinian Authority, which is the yes. government in the in the, West, in Bank. the West Bank, I say government in a very attenuated way mm. because it has very limited authority. Yes. Um, and very limited sovereignty, if, if, if any at all. Palestinians are now more enthusiastic about Hamas, mm-hmm. even though Hamas has invited this, this disaster on its own people. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that often happens. And, uh, I mean, this goes way back to, uh, I was reading a piece by Lawrence Durrell, the author of the Alexandria Quartet. But he at one stage was working in Cyprus at the time of uprisings uh, among uh, the Cypriot independence movements. And uh, he explains then that one of the tactics of the people behind the uprising was to carry out an outrage in the in trying to get the British to come and, and overreact. And, and, overreact. Mm. and that, of course, got them more recruits. And this is sort of a similar to, it, mm. to, to what Hamas is now doing. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the scale of the Israeli reaction, um, you know, 30,000 killed um, so in, in, a, in, a, in a space of four months, Getting on, getting on to five, one of the certain outcomes of this will be that the hatred for Israel among Palestinians will increase even more. And the irony of that is that this is supposedly done, outwardly done, to protect Israel's security, but it's mm. probably guaranteeing an ongoing escalated threat. Yes. To Israel's security as well. Exactly. Into the future. Now you I mean, see why I'm pessimistic. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Let's, uh, before we come back to what I said, we'd mention uh, this deadline and so forth, 
let's just quickly touch on where the Americans are with all of this because America has been so pivotal to support for mm-hmm. Israel, the relationship, uh, the financial aid, the arms aid, uh, which is still flowing to Israel. And yet the Americans turn out to have very little sway over Netanyahu in this. The, mm-hmm. You can see the frustration. Uh, Anthony Blinken, the um, Secretary of State, has been there five or six times now on shuttle diplomacy. There have been all kinds of attempts at, at sort of a, a counselling restraint on Netanyahu. Biden's had a number of conversations with him, reportedly referred to him, Netanyahu, that is, as an arsehole recently. I think it might have been an asshole. Um, mm. uh, and you can understand the frustration, but the Americans have no real leverage here. Um, no. no, you're absolutely right. And Netanyahu is extremely good at leveraging American politics to work in, uh, mm. in his favour. Netanyahu and Obama had a totally poisonous relationship. They loathed each other. And Obama tried to put pressure on Israel to reduce settlement building in the in the West Bank because Obama could see that uh, it was just destroying the prospects for any sort of Palestinian state. Mm, mm. And he had no success whatsoever. And in fact, in 2015, I think, it might have been 2016, but certainly during Obama's term, the most extraordinary thing occurred with Netanyahu making a visit to the US, speaking to a joint session of the Republican-controlled Congress and not even calling on the President of the United States. Mm. It was just uh, just amazing. Um, and of course, being given a standing ovation by, uh, by the Congress. By Republicans, yeah. Now, let's go to this deadline that's been announced. It's, it's quite curious, actually. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of things you could say about it. So the Israelis have said to Hamas, Give us all our hostages back, including the uh, the remains of those who are no mm. longer alive, uh, by March 10, which is the start of Ramadan, mm. or you will face the ground invasion in Rafah that we've been talking about. Israel has not specifically said that it will then not invade afterwards. It's just left that open as far mm. as I can tell. Um, and bearing in mind what we were just discussing about Netanyahu, there seems no likelihood that he would decide not to go after the Hamas leadership. Mm. You know, to continue to do so, and we've seen what that involves. Basically, it involves a logic of saying there are in tunnels underneath you, therefore you don't count. Mm. To that effectively, that's the message to Palestinian civilians. And there's been no restraint showed in hospitals and mosques and all kinds of other things. You've got this declaration. I suppose there's a few things you can say about it. One is, presumably, it means there won't be a ground invasion between now and March 10. Unless, there, yeah. unless there's a definitive mm. declaration from Hamas that that will not be agreed mm. to under any circumstances. And what what else does it tell us? Well, uh, I, I think it's it was significantly it was the, that declaration was given by Gantz, not Netanyahu. Right. And Gantz this is, is seen, Benny Gantz. Is seen the, as Benny Gantz. Yeah. Uh, he's the, he's not in Likud. He's uh, the leader of another party, mm. but he's part of the war cabinet. And he's a very decorated soldier, uh, uh, yes, highly regarded. Former head of the uh, of the former chief of staff of the the IDF. Yeah. Um, so uh, he has cred as far as the Israeli public is concerned, and he's also seen in by the West, if you like, and also among Palestinians as someone that in a sense, is not as as rigid, yeah. as not as hard line. He's not mad. As, yeah, but not, not mad. I mean, not like the uh, – the, the, but he's not in the government as mm. such. Mm. Um, but so he is in this war cabinet. He's in the war cabinet, mm. but, but not in the government. Mm. So it gives it a bit of added impetus saying this isn't just 
Netanyahu and the you know Ben Gavir and Smotrich who are saying this. This is the more moderate member mm. of the the war cabinet, and what it does is it gives credibility to the the likelihood that Israel will go in and will essentially probably have a lot of civilian casualties unless they're able to be moved out of the Rafah area. But I doubt that they can be in that time. But they do have something like, what are we now? We're the 20th, aren't mm. we? Probably got three weeks in which mm. they can, they, you know, the various international agencies can try to move them uh, out of there. But th- there's the question, where do they go as yeah. well? Because there's nowhere to live. And how do you move them without moving the leadership? Yes. Uh, well, you, you can move everybody who's above ground, but nobody who's, who's below ground. Where, where that actually gets them is, is not certain at, at this point. So is there and, some international messaging going on here? Yes, Does it reflect yeah. the, the reality that Israel understands it's under more international pressure than it has been probably ever before? Yes, uh, I think that's right. I mean, it, it takes a lot to put you know, really serious pressure on Netanyahu. But there is now a, a great deal of international pressure. We've had the, the three-way statement by the Prime Ministers of Australia, Canada and New Zealand, uh, which is most unusual. I've never seen um, a statement of that, that sort on a foreign policy issue in, in this way. Also, it's very clear that the United States is putting a lot of pressure on, uh, on Israel. I think that uh, someone like Gantz, probably within the war cabinet, said, well, look, we've got to take some note of this. Mm. And this actually is quite a clever ploy in many ways because they're saying we don't want to have any more civilian casualties. We want all civilians out of here and we're now giving you essentially three weeks to do it. But we will go in definitely at at that point. But what they're not promising is what Hamas has demanded with its demands, which Netanyahu has called delusional, is an undertaking that the Israeli forces will then leave Gaza and will not keep attacking Gaza. Netanyahu won't do that, and he really can't because his own cabinet won't won't let him do it. Mm. They're as hard line as he is. His cabinet would break up. They'd have to have new elections, and Netanyahu is extremely unpopular at the mm. moment, has only about a 15% popularity rating. He would almost certainly lose uh, an election, be unable, unable to form a coalition government. I mean, Israeli politics is a, is, is, a, is a study in itself because it takes only 3.5% or about that for a party to get representation in, in the Knesset. A party can be one or two people, but if they've got three and a half percent, they're represented there. So it's uh, it, it means that you can never have uh, any one party with more than 60 seats in the Knesset, with uh, more than 50%. So uh, no government is going to be a, in a sense, uh, uh, a government which, which has got its own principles. It's going to have to dilute those principles to work with other parties. It's, it's an unusual situation that we, that we face in Israel. Um, but yes, you could say that. Um, just just in a couple of minutes we got left, talk to me about the negotiations because it seems to me that's a highly problematic process. We've had this is negotiations for a ceasefire that have the Americans have have been eventually been pushing for and and uh, as you just noted, Australia and other countries support. Uh, there have been attempts to reach some sort of agreement for humanitarian ceasefires in the past. How do those negotiations actually? Work. I mean, how do you negotiate mm. with Hamas mm. if Hamas isn't at the table? So there's 
sort of proxies or Qataris or someone uh, negotiating on their behalf. But yeah. how does the messaging happen between them and Hamas without revealing the location of those that Hamas leadership, which the Israelis, yeah. of course, would dearly like to know? Yeah, the politics of uh, of negotiations between parties that won't talk with each other is is, is obviously very complicated. I mm. mean, when the US talks with Iran, when they were trying to reestablish the joint comprehensive um, plan of action, mm. the, the the nuclear agreement, the negotiations took place in Qatar, mm. in Doha, but the Americans and the Iranians were in separate rooms. <laughs> they weren't meeting together. Now, exactly how it's working in Egypt and when it takes place in, in Qatar, I don't know. And it's being done by the Hamas representatives who live in Qatar. Mm. They actually go to go there. And it's being conducted essentially by the head of Mossad uh, with the, the head of CIA uh, there as well, essentially trying to work together on these things. But there probably are other... Israeli negotiators there. And the Israelis have got some very good, skilled negotiators. Now, exact, whether they all sit down together uh, and talk, I'm not, I don't know. I, I haven't seen pictures of, of this happening, so I'm afraid I can't uh, uh, make a comment mm. there. But the message is getting through. There are clearly messages getting, getting passed. Now, One imagines if the Israelis knew, if there was signal intelligence about any, any sort of dialogue between Hamas leadership and those negotiators, mm. the Israelis would be onto that very quickly. Well, presumably, yes. Exactly how they get uh, Yahya Sinwa's okay. Imprimatur on, to uh, do anything yeah, at all. Yeah. Is, is unclear, but yeah. somehow or other they actually do, they do get it. But getting back to this, this deadline itself, I find it, I think it's most unlikely that Hamas will simply say, okay, we'll release all the hostages now, you know, or, you know, on, on the 10th. Uh, I think it's more likely they'll make a partial offer, an offer to release half, maybe three quarters. See, they've got about 139. How many are still alive? We mm. don't know. Mm. But they've still got, got quite a lot. And so the, there's the scope for the Hamas to come up with a counteroffer is there. They've not come up with it as yet, but I suspect there will be counteroffers back and forth. Now, interestingly, it seems to me that the fact that Benny Gantz has actually made the offer, indicates to me that there probably isn't much room for negotiation. I think that, um, in fact, if uh, Hamas doesn't give back all the hostages by the 10th, the Israelis will, will go in. So and it's just another way of saying we're going in on or after, immediately right. after but March we, 10th. But we warned the international community yeah. and we took note. And you can see we were being reasonable. We were, we, exactly. you know, we were trying to get our people out. We've done everything we can. We've given mm. them all this extra time and That's we right. didn't have to yeah. and they have defied us, yeah. so we're going in. I mean, we'll have to see what happens in yeah. three weeks. But uh, And three weeks, is, I can assure you, is a very long time in the Middle East. But it, yeah. uh, I, I suspect they're simply clearing their lines Indicating to the international community, you know, get off our backs. We're doing our best here, and you know, if if we can get all our hostages back, we we can modify our our plans. But they haven't said what they'll do instead. That's the uh, that's the issue. Yes. Well, I hope that you've enjoyed or, or learned as much as I have in having this chat with Ian Palmer. Ian, thanks so much for being on Democracy Sausage. You're welcome. Uh, it's great to have scholars like you at ANU and who can really unpick these things and know the history so well and speak with such authority and such first-hand knowledge of, of the region. We all just hope, we hope rather than expect that, that there will be some sort of improvement in this appalling situation in the Middle East. 
That's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Till then, bye for now.